You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Ken Burns. This program originally aired in 2007. This archive audio is clipped at the beginning. We apologize. War sets our republic vibrating in often dangerous and unexpected and unintended ways. And we seek desperately to understand the mysterious, inscrutable, sometimes even transcendent elements that force their way to the surface when human beings kill each other in great numbers. That is to say, when human beings go to war. It is not enough to be against war. In a world where so much evil exists, where human nature itself propels people into defensive postures and then into aggressive action, there is no chance that wars will simply disappear just because we hope it will be so. Indeed, our history shows us that some wars had to be fought, and still the contradictions and paradox of armed conflict confound us at every turn. This project was born out of great reluctance. Seventeen years ago, we published a book and released an 11-and-a-half-hour, nine-part film on the American Civil War. For years, those of us who were engaged with those projects struggled daily to understand the four horrible years in our national life where, in order to become one, we tore ourselves in two. Our series on the Civil War began with a short quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. He had been wounded six times during that conflict and would go on to serve his country once again as a justice of the United States Supreme Court. He said, we have shared the incommunicable experience of war. We have felt, we still feel, the passion of life at its top. In our youths, our hearts were touched with fire. Holmes was struggling himself to put into words what every soldier who has faced combat knows in his or her guts, that paradoxically, when your life is most threatened, when violent death is possible at any moment, everything, everything is vivified, the intensity of experience heightened to a level not felt in ordinary life. War creates a terror, an excruciating, unbearable terror, to be sure, that is not only repellent, but undeniably compelling, and sometimes, to some, inexplicably attractive. It is an almost indescribable feeling that survivors of war from the beginning of recorded human history have found overwhelming, intimidating, haunting, yet also seductive and spellbinding. Shortly after Appomattox, Walt Whitman, a Brooklyn journalist and sometime poet who had worked as a nurse in the appalling Union hospitals, warned posterity about what he had just seen. Future years, he said, will never know the seething hell, the black infernal background, the countless minor scenes and interiors of the secession war, and it is best they should not. The real war, Whitman said, will never get in the books. That certainty, as so many soldiers have confirmed, as well as Eric Severide and Holmes and Whitman and countless others, that it is impossible to accurately describe the experience of war has not kept novelists and writers, historians, and even documentary filmmakers from trying. Though for years after our Civil War series was aired, we vowed that we would not attempt another film or book about the subject. At nearly every juncture, we politely turned away the suggestions of strangers and colleagues that we take on this struggle or that one, usually the Second World War, each protest cementing even more our resolve not to go to war again. At first, we didn't want to be typecast or seen to be exploiting the unexpected success of our Civil War film and book but somewhere we also didn't want to descend again into the frightening, 
but of course also mesmerizing parallel universe of war with its inevitable suffering, loss, catastrophe, and death. But several years ago, two equally awful yet different statistics began to erode that conviction for us. After years of deflecting requests that we do something specifically on World War II, usually from aging participants or their children, anxious that their parents' long private dramas be finally shared, we learned to our horror that 1,000 veterans of the Second World War were dying each day in America that we are losing among our fathers and our grandfathers a direct connection to the deeds of that unusually and admirably reticent generation, that if we, the inheritors of the world, they struggled so hard to create for us, neglected to hear them out before they passed away, we would be guilty of a historical amnesia too irresponsible to countenance. In recent years, to be sure, there has been an increase in our popular culture in everything World War II that might, might have excused us. These have ranged from the ridiculous, of course, but also to the sublime, as in the superbly realized television drama Band of Brothers, and of course Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan with its extraordinary scene of the landing at Omaha Beach. And then there have been the books, thousands of them, each attempting to revisit, rearrange, and reinterpret the specific moments or grand themes of the Second World War. One of them, Tom Brokaw's Greatest Generation, became a phenomenon. It was as if suddenly that nearly lifelong reticence dissolved, and brave soldier after brave soldier, liberated by the loose and essentially disconnected collection of stories in Brokaw's book, finally felt they had been given permission to speak, to tell their stories before they were gone, their collective intimation of mortality, a reminder that that incommunicable experience of war, as Holmes put it, nonetheless still require them to try to express to those future years, as Whitman said, what had really happened to them when they were teenagers, what they themselves had seen and done, and how their individual stories connected to the larger issues and dramas of that war. Posterity, in a sense, beckoned to them. They had, they have to tell us. Their memory is their most valuable asset and our most valuable inheritance. Brokaw should be given a medal for helping to release this extraordinary energy, this outpouring of pure personal history, allowing us to understand without artifice or false pieties the real truth of war, that despite the leadership or lack thereof of politicians and generals, it is the bottom-up story of so-called ordinary soldiers that can fill in the fuller canvas for us. We also noted that with the exception of a few excellent filmed efforts about specific battles or moments in that conflict, there had been no meaningful large-scale documentary film series on the Second World War for more than two generations. The knowledge that our fathers were dying now gave us further pause to reconsider our stance, our insistence on avoiding the messy chaos of war. The second statistic was just as devastating as the first. It came from research done by the National Council for History Education in the 1990s. Among a number of demoralizing facts about the continuing crisis in our schools over what our children know and don't know, one item stood out. In the end, we could not ignore its stupefying truth or the consequences it infers for our still fragile republic. 
It seems that an unacceptably large number of graduating high school seniors, those with diplomas in hand, walking away from the podium, about to accept the mantle of leadership over the rest of us, too many graduating high school seniors think we fought with the Germans against the Russians in the Second World War. I'm glad you're all sitting down. My own knees still tend to buckle a bit when I repeat a statistic I've known like a dark family secret for more than a decade. By the time these terrible statistics had fully sunk in, we found we could no longer, we could no longer ignore the subject. More than six years ago, therefore, we committed to working on a film series and companion book that have just now been completed, a massive project that has consumed and transformed everyone who has worked on it. The journey from the original outrage at those two awful facts, that we are losing our soldiers and losing our historical compass, has been long and complicated. Taking on any war is risky, but taking on the biggest of them all is clearly fraught with peril. No book or film series, however long, can reflect the whole story. So how would we limit it then, while still providing the context so clearly lacking in recent works? How do you relate the reality of that war? What was it really like to be in battle? Which battles do we have to cover? How do you do justice to the small moments, the quotidian details of ordinary happenstance, without sacrificing the larger sense and momentum of that struggle? How do you communicate the simultaneity of the two major theaters, European and Pacific, that we Americans were principally engaged in? You know, there has been no film, documentary or otherwise, that has been able to show the European and the Pacific and the home front simultaneously. And how do you show that home front from the radical and impressive transformation of American industrial might in a country just emerging from the Great Depression to the myriad personal moments of loss worry, hope, and reunion? How do you show the larger aerial view of the war, the top-down version, the context, alongside the bottom-up individual side, the intimate, the personal, that we always at least try to champion? And where do you start? These were only a handful of the questions we asked ourselves as we began work so long ago, it now seems. To try to answer these questions for both the book and the film, we traveled nearly around the world, conducted dozens and dozens of interviews, drew on material from hundreds of archives, devoted thousands of man and woman hours to research and the organization of the material we collected, edited that material for more than two and a half years, wrote and rewrote and wrote again hundreds of pages of narration, engaged the services of the great actor Keith David to read that narration for the film, plus Tom Hanks, Samuel L. Jackson, Josh Lucas, Bobby Cannavale, Adam Arkin, and Eli Wallach, among others, to read the diaries and letters, newspaper columns, and other first-person material that inevitably punctuate our films worked with a dozen talented musicians and one very great composer, Wynton Marsalis, to complement the dozens of pieces of classical jazz, swing, folk, and other music from the period that forms our soundtrack. Listened to the haunting music and lyrics of Gene Shear's American Anthem as sung by Nora Jones. Collected the thousands, literally thousands, of individual sounds of war to merge into an effects track that will hopefully put the viewer of the film uncomfortably into some of the battles we try to bring to the fore. 
and been privileged, privileged, to be ushered into the lives and memories of nearly 50 men and women who brought the war modestly, gingerly, with great emotion and pain and no small amount of ambivalence to our doorsteps so that we in turn might try to work and rework, massage and cajole, honor and celebrate the bravery and heroism of these citizen soldiers who, when they were 18, 19, and 20 years old, a time when most of us here had the luxury of inattention and narcissistic self-involvement, happened to have helped save the world. It's one of the best stories I know. How fortunate it is that we in the United States are stitched together as a people, indeed as individuals, by words and ideas, but also by memory. And when, as it lawfully sometimes must, our magnificent tapestry becomes frayed and worn, we often lose that connection to each other, that which binds us back to the whole. In those moments, we look uneasily into the void that has, over the centuries, destroyed so many other promising experiments. In those moments, it becomes necessary to reinvigorate that which we share in common, ignoring those polarizing impulses that inevitably afflict us all. One antidote to this misery of misunderstanding and division is memory. One antidote, in a sense, is anecdote. Memory is that deeply personal affirmation of self, that which calibrates and triangulates our sense of who we are. And yet it is also the ambassador of our own individual foreign policy, the agency that helps cement friendships, associations, and ambitions. In a larger sense, memory permits us to have an authentic relationship to our national narrative. These individual stories and moments, anecdotes and memories become the building blocks, the DNA, if you will, of our collective experience. Out of these associations, we find the material, the glue, to make that fragile experiment stick. Permanent, a machine, someone once said so beautifully, that will go of itself. You will meet in our book, as in our film, 50 or so human beings who are about to descend into the madness of global war, all of whom you will know by the end of the last chapters, I hope, almost like family members. These will not be the traditional top-down heroes we are usually presented with, generals, presidents, and statesmen, prime ministers, and field marshals, who tend to recede from our understanding just as they ascend to the pantheon of great men, capital G, capital M. These are folks you might have had Thanksgiving with, men whose stories of war are just now being told for the first time. And most of these people who narrate our account of the most complex conflict in history come not from the centers of population and power in the United States, but from four geographically distributed, representative, we hope, to some extent isolated towns. Where our Civil War narrative have focused primarily on the main players while trying not to sacrifice an appreciation of what the privates were doing, this story is different, told almost exclusively from the perspectives of those who did the actual fighting and dying, as well as those back home who waited for their loved ones to return. Through their eyes, it is possible in moments to sense how the whole country got caught up in that war. These towns could be any four towns, of course. How the nation reacted to the news of attack. How their sons were mobilized and sent off. How the progress of that war unfolded. What battles were like from the ground up, the street level. How those who remained at home worked and worried and grieved 
in the face of that struggle, how innocent young men who had just been turned into professional killers adjusted to a world without war, those young men being our fathers, our grandfathers, and how the four towns, and most important, its people, were permanently transformed by the Second World War. By concentrating on the specific, we hope we've made it possible to better receive the universal, to comprehend the whole because we are invested, deeply and emotionally invested, in the particular. Over the course of the pages of our book and in the seven episodes of the film series, these brave individuals will take us on a tour of hell, not the good war of our sentimental imagination and subsequent mythologizing, but the necessary war, the necessary war that gives our first chapter its title. Before the Japanese attacked on December 7, 1941, most Americans could not have found Pearl Harbor on a map. In the nearly four years that followed, they would have to learn a host of new names of the places their sons would be fighting. Kasserine Pass and Monte Cassino, Utah Beach and Omaha Beach and Samaraglis, Arnhem and Aachen and the Hurtgen Forest and the Ardennes. And on the other side of the world, Guam and Bataan and Guadalcanal, Saipan and Peleliu and Iwo Jima, Midway and New Gloucester and Okinawa and more and more. And young men from our towns would learn difficult, painful lessons in those places, lessons as old as war itself, that generals make plans, plans go wrong, and soldiers die. Ladies and gentlemen, memory is imperfect, but its inherent instability allows our past, which we usually see as fixed, to remain as it actually is malleable, changing not just as new information emerges, but as our own interests, emotions, and inclinations change. In less than a generation, we can go from an almost obsessive interest in the guns and tactics of World War II to a profound apprehension of cause, heroism, loss, and even redemption. If history is accumulated memory, then war is a kind of forgetting the lie of civilization, the worst kind of inattention to the flaws in our nature that repeatedly and foolishly propel us again and again and again into Holocaust, magnifying and accelerating that loss, but also paradoxically uniting us as a people in that grief. The healing, if any, that can come from this at both a collective as well as deeply individual level is sponsored by the corrective that cathartic memory and its authentic expression always is. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be back here at Writers on a New England stage. And how wonderful. How <laughs> great. <laughs> It's great to have Ken Burns here. Just real broadly, World War II, as you know, is often called the Good War. You, in your presentation tonight, and time and time again, have called it the Necessary War. Yeah. Is that something else that you were Huge. trying to accomplish? Huge, because I think, and it's very understandable, particularly since our country has fought increasingly ambivalent wars, Korea and then Vietnam and Iraq, 
that we look back with a certain amount of nostalgia, and this is what human beings always do. Remember, before the Civil War, they rode out in carriages with picnic baskets to look at a war as if it was a spectator sport, something you could have fun watching, and they saw their husband's gut shot, their brains left on the Virginia soil. I mean, this is not fun, and I don't know what it is. It's in our DNA that we forget. We get excited about war. And so over the decades, we tend to smother the Second World War and some, you know, mythology that it was the good war. And we understand why. Our reasons for being involved were relatively unambiguous. The whole country seemed to be involved. All of that's good, but it's not the good war. It's, in fact, the worst war ever, ever. And that's what we wanted to sort of open the lid on and also say, though it is an example of a necessary war. This is something that had to be fought, and there's no way of avoiding that. And those of us who share the sense that it could have been avoided, that it, you know, it didn't have to be fought, that adhere to a strict pacifist thing, are really enjoying the luxury of abstraction. I mean, we see the Holocaust that came out of this, and I don't just mean in the extermination of the Jewish people, but even in the larger Holocaust uh, that took place in this war and realize what would have happened if we, for example, had refused to get involved and say, okay, have Hawaii, have, have the Pacific, what the world would be like today. How was this different for you as a filmmaker? Uh, all the other Ken Burns films I've seen talk to very nice historians, and right. <laughs> uh, they read old letters in these great accents. And but how was it different for you, Ken, talking to real people who'd been through this really horrific experience? Well, you know, I mean, part of the reason why we didn't want to do war again is that the Civil War veterans, when they'd been in combat, said they'd seen the elephant. It was the most I guess, exotic thing that they could think of. So that was the, what you said. Once you'd been under fire, you'd seen the elephant. And we sort of had two and said we didn't want to go there again. And that was our great-great-grandfather's uh, with sepia photographs at the remove of 150 years. This is our fathers, literally, or, or grandfathers in some cases, and they're still alive. We could sit on the couch and go, oh, my God, that's where you've been. And the feedback that I've gotten in the last few weeks has been exactly that. We had no idea. Pop, you never told us. My father was at Guadalcanal. I mean, the, I mean some guy sent me a little vial of dirt that he collected at Omaha Beach. I mean... And it was thank you, because they hadn't seen the war represented the way they knew it had been done. And so it's been, for us, entirely different and difficult to leave. It's, we've had our own sort of pale version of PTSD as we've tried to disengage from it and, quite frankly, don't want to. We've now lost, particularly in a horrific, accelerating uh, triage so many of the people in our film. And uh, just the other day, we lost Earl Burke, those of you who might have remembered the film. He was the B-17 ball turret gunner, and it was so claustrophobic, wounded at 20,000 feet, and with 37 degrees below zero, his blood formed into little pellets, and he had to scoop it out, he said, before he got down to altitude, where it would go back to being a liquid, and then he'd have to clean it up. Um, he just passed away, and a month before that, Ray Leopold, our Jew who stumbled upon the Hatamar concentration camps where they were doing medical experiments. I mean, we know these people now. They're into our bloodstream. It's been really different than any other film. I have no less than four questions, all asking how you picked those four cities. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I would like to tell you that it was a dart on a map. And in some ways it is. We were looking for that randomness. What we wanted were cities 
that not only our audience, but that we as filmmakers would have no associations with. That meant that we could go into these towns free of the baggage and preconceptions that would force us to do kind of obligatory things about them. We had already thought initially, early in our thinking, that perhaps we could do one town, and we tentatively chose Waterbury, Connecticut, in large part because we didn't know anything about it and because we heard they had preserved through a series of town museums their history very well, and that was true. We quickly discovered that we weren't going to find among the surviving veterans enough variety of combat experience to do justice to the kind of story. And so we decided to just extrapolate out. We'd read a book called With the Old Breed by Eugene Sledge about this young Marine's experience on Peleliu and Okinawa, and it was the single best memoir of war I'd ever read. I was learned today that it's now climbing up the bestseller charts on the New York Times paperback list, and I just thought, that's so great. I mean, it's something else. He's so honest, uh, Gene Sledge. And when we got to Mobile, he had just passed away. He's from Mobile. And his son introduced us to his best friend, Sid Phillips, and his sister, Catherine, and they became central parts of the film. And we got an actor to read Eugene Sledge's part, Josh Lucas, which he did magnificently. And then we just widened our circle in Mobile and had a range of wonderful experiences, the great gift of Southern storytelling, race that would bubble up. Some of the people who came forward to us were African-Americans, amazing stories from folks from the outlying communities. It was a great place. We knew alone among ethnic groups that we wanted to personally seek out, we wanted to find the great hypocritical experience of the war. This is a war being fought in some ways for a kind of false theories of racial purity, and so we wanted to find a West Coast town where we could hopefully get in touch with the experiences of Japanese Americans. And rather than pick, again, the familiar cities of Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, LA, and San Diego, we picked Sacramento and found among the survivors of a population of nearly 7,000 Japanese Americans, most of whom were citizens like you and me, were removed from the town, met to vacate their houses in less than a week with one suitcase full of belonging to give up their jobs, their farms, their homes, and move to inland relocation camps, euphemism for internment camps, and told among the citizens, the young men, that they were enemy aliens, unfit for military service. But when the losses mounted in the Pacific, these people were then recruited not for a specific branch of the service where their particular talents in life might be applied to photography or to ordinance or to organization or quartermasters or even kitchen. They were all frontline combat duty. And they served with such distinction that they are among the most decorated and bravest regiments in American history. That, to me, is one of the finest examples of patriotism I've ever come across. And just think about it, that when someone dies in battle, as they did in excruciating numbers in Italy and France from the 442nd 100th Regimental Combat Team made up entirely of Japanese-American soldiers, the death notices, a grateful nation regrets to tell you that your son has given the ultimate sacrifice, goes to a, a mother and father under armed guard in a camp in the United States, and we're sorry that your son has made this gesture, and by the way, if you move a few steps, I'm going to have to shoot you. Sacramento is a great place. And then we thrashed about for a small town that would 
give us that intimacy that I know from Walpole, where I live. Uh, Waterbury, Mobile, and Sacramento had all about 100,000. They were outwardly transformed, became war towns. And we needed some place where the transformation was more subtle, more psychological, and founded in Laverne, Minnesota. We'd already met this pilot, Quentin Annenson. And when he said he was from Laverne, we went there. And almost immediately, Lynn uh, Novick, the co-producer and co-director of the film, found in the archives Al McIntosh, the editor of the local paper, whose weekly column, more or less daily chaff, detailed this psychological transformation. And he could witness these intimate moments of grief and loss and heroism, sacrifice, even reunion that took place in this tiny town. And, and then we had them. And that was it. And most of the people you meet come from those four towns. I was so struck watching this film and looking at the pictures in the book, but especially the footage Time and time and time again, Ken, I thought, who shot that? Yeah. And how did they shoot it? How did they do it? You are right in it. Where did you find that footage? It's unbelievable. We had the luxury of working on this project for many, many years. And if you are one of those History Channel folks and you're going to produce something, you've got a, a, a small window to go to the archives and collect stuff. And the archives are smart. They put the main stuff, the well-trodden stuff, right out there on the table, you know, on the buffet table. And you take that and you come back and you write your script and then you have your head buried in the script as you film it and then you edit it. Is that the National Archives? The National Archives is is our principal source here. We went to hundreds in Moscow and Tokyo and Berlin and London and hundreds of places in the United States. And we also married it, that public archive, with our personal archives. We wanted to find the photograph that mom was keeping behind and we know what the addresses are where everybody came from, hugely important as they go off. It made them real people to know that they lived at this address, that they're, what their high school graduation picture looked like, what they looked like standing in their front lawn with their grandma, with their dog. You know, all of that made them real, their army IDs once they got in. And we merged that with this public thing. But we were able to spend literally years in the National Archives. To answer the first part of your question, the Signal Corps and combat photographers in the Navy and the Marine Corps took photographs there in place. There were some what you would call embedded journalists. Most of them were writers, but some were still photographers and and filmmakers. Most of it, though, was done by servicemen who, without weapons, put themselves in the most horrific action. What we found is that a lot of material was classified and didn't see the light of day, and it took a great deal of searching to get that material. We find photographs, horrible, and I mean, our film is horrible. I remember one middle-aged woman, not a history buff or a filmmaker, said, it's horrible, don't take out a single dead body. But there's maybe only one short of too many dead bodies in our film in footage or photographs, and we'd find files that would show It was called classified, and it would just be horrible stuff I would never show to you, but we had to suffer for it. You had to go through all that. It was amazing. I mean, we looked at tens of thousands of photographs, and some would be like a soldier with a wound smiling. They didn't want to think he'd be smiling to go home, or a general fishing or golfing. That was classified, along with this horrible stuff. And we looked at literally thousands of hours of footage. We pursued the outtakes of many of the newsreel features and found extensions of shots. The most famous shot from the World War II, perhaps, is of looking back at Omaha Beach, down the beach, and a soldier, it's about three and a half seconds shot, where a soldier drops on the beach. Well, we found the outtakes of that, and it's now a seven and a half or eight second shot in which three soldiers die. 
and it just exponentially compounds the tragedy and the danger and the immediacy that you feel there. We discovered that some of the outtakes, when we went back to find the original negative to print them, were in color, that they had just uniformly made everything black and white, and that all of a sudden it was a real war, not a safe black and white war at arm's length, or at least one in which the black and white permitted us a kind of emotional distance from the killing. But suddenly it was bloody, and we had to look away but it was real. So to me, it was the luxury of just staying with it. We could spend time in those towns to forge the relationship with those towns and the people and their archives, but we could also do that in the, the larger national archives, particularly our great, great repository. I have a question from our audience also related to that. This person says, I had a difficult time watching the whole of each episode. At a certain point, the death and destruction was overwhelming. Um, by the way, I had this reaction, too, yeah. a couple times. I just had to get up and leave the room. How did you handle emotionally the, quote, secondary trauma reliving the carnage? It's a good question. It is a good question. I, you know, it, it was tough. Um, you know, I don't pretend to have had been anywhere near battle. In fact, no one in our immediate production has ever been in the service, and yet um, it was hard. I mean, we would go and... Uh, we'd be in the editing room for weeks trying to work on a scene. You go home and you dream about that scene, and then all of a sudden you were no longer a filmmaker trying to solve what are relatively innocuous questions of structure and pacing and choice, and I'm suddenly in that battle that we're trying to do, and you'd come back hollow-eyed, and the editor would look the same way, and you'd say, where were you? And he'd say, Okinawa, where were you? And it would be Peleliu, and and then you'd go on and work. It was, it was very, very tough. Uh, we, we were very mindful. We'd bring in people, what we called warm bodies all the time. And I remember we brought in the wife of our, our fighter pilot, Quentin Annenson, and she just wept after an episode. And I said, but Jackie, Quentin's been talking about this. She goes, not like this. She had not really been aware of what her husband had been through. And she said that when the discussion got uncomfortable, over the last 55, 60 years of marriage, she said she could always go into the kitchen and wash dishes. And so she had missed it. But here in the politesse of having to watch the film, she was confronted with what he did. And we're finding this over and over again. That I just heard from a psychiatrist who had a client, who a middle-aged man, 50s, who said that he had no relationship with his father, incredible, intense, angry, and he happened to just accidentally watch the series. And his father had been in the war, and he just broke down and forgave his father has gone on to repair it because he suddenly had some access to the world. He'd seen a battle that his father had been in and suddenly that gave him and the father permission to begin to work on whatever had strained and repaired and who knows the extent to which the Second World War was responsible for the isolation, the distance, the iciness of that father. Well, there was a quote in the film that psychiatrists told one of the soldiers who I think had been in it. Yeah. Death camp, the or death camp, a POW baton death camp. march, and the POW camp. Uh, he said, "Act normal, and you'll feel normal." Can you imagine that? That was the extent of sort of psychological oversight, uh, and just, just the stigma of seeing a psychiatrist at that time was devastating. Yeah, I mean, we like to think of PTSD as part of our therapeutic society, as part of Vietnam or the Gulf Wars, but in fact. It's exponentially greater cases from World War II because there are that many more people. What we learned, too, is that all wars are the same. They're unique particulars to a particular battle, to a particular time. But in essence, the experience of war can be boiled down to a few sort of utter truths. You know, I was scared, I was bored, I was hot, I was cold, I saw bad things, I did bad things. Huge, important thing that we learned. 
I lost good friends. And it's very interesting, those last two things. The guilt from having killed other human beings, that's what war is all about. And sometimes in those moments, in ways that aren't attractive, which were let out in our film, and it was the first time many of them were admitting to this, and the sense that you get into basic, we all, most of us, still have relationship with someone we knew from college, that intensity of that new experience away from home forged a friendship. But basic training and then participation in war is like going to college for 40 years, but your parents don't know this person. And you suddenly look away, and I turn back, and not only are you dead, but your brains are all over me. Who do you come back and tell that to? Who do you come back and tell that to? And it's only at the end of the lives that we're finding people willing to do that. Paul Fussell describing so poignantly these children, these 16, 15-year-old Germans with little felt hats, not helmets, with their blue brains oozing out. It's something nobody wants to hear, but if you want to know what the cost of war is, and we ought to in a democracy want to know, so that when we elect the leaders who make the decisions to send us there, they know what we're going into. I've got a couple more questions from the audience that I want to get through with you, Ken. Given your interest in the issue of race, please comment on the controversy with the Latino community. Yeah, it's so sad. I mean, most of it came from this movement of identity politics in our time, which is sort of retroactive. The 1940 census says that the uh, uh, Hispanic population was 1.4%. We ourselves were not looking for any particular ethnic group, except, as I said, the Japanese Americans. We reached out in every community to veterans groups asking for combat experience. And the real question to the Hispanic community was why no one came forward. And as we went and investigated it after the controversy is that most of them felt, as so many other veterans did, that the real heroes were their friends that they had left behind. Hispanics were not segregated. We didn't do German-Americans, a much huger thing. We were interested in not the things that made us distinct and apart, but made us one and Americans. And so we were willing to take any stories that came forward, but we were looking for those contributions that remind us us of their universality. When Susumu Satow of Sacramento is crying, breaking down unexpectedly on camera about two dead Germans in front of him that were his age, that he said, I could have gone to school with, that hurted me. He's not a Japanese-American. He's not even an American. He's a human being. And indeed, as we went and sought to transcend the dialectic of the politics that, of which there are no winners, we produced some other segments. The Hispanic veterans that we talked to said the same thing. One guy said to me, suddenly I'm Hispanic. I'm Mexican-American, and when I joined the Marines, I was an American, which was exactly what it was. The only thing I can understand is that Part of this fracture that I tried to speak about, the, the, the frayed tapestry that we experience, the lack of shared sacrifices, identity politics. Arthur Schlesinger labeled it really well, the late historian. He said, there's too much pluribus and not enough unum. And I think that in some extent, they did themselves a disservice because they further made themselves distinct and isolated themselves. We were all just Americans, and that was the point of the film. And what they miss by judging a film, which is very un-American, before it's out. I really think you can say whatever you want once it's out and say, whoa, you should have done this or done that, and people have done that, and that's all right. To judge it beforehand miss the fact that there were already many, many images of Hispanics throughout the film. And they were just there, and we put them in, trying to represent what America looked like. But we had vowed early on we would not go out 
with the exception of Japanese Americans, and seek a specific ethnicity. I bumped into Senator Kent Conrad in the Minneapolis airport uh, while the controversy was raging, and he walked up the plane and he said, Ken, there are no Swedish Americans. What's wrong with you? Well, Ken, I have uh, so many other questions to ask you, but I have to wrap it up at this point. But I do want to ask you one more. You have said that uh, you didn't want to do this project. The Civil War was the last war you, you wanted to do. Um, enough with the war. Then you decided to do it, and you told us why. So is this it? No more war films for Ken Burns? No, no. Uh, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> We're right now engaged in a history of the national parks. There's a very low body count, I'm happy to say. I'm working with <laughs> Dayton Duncan on this. And uh, it's very, very powerful, compelling story about the setting aside of this land that we take for granted. We have many other projects. But what we are now even beginning to discuss is beginning work in a few years on something on Vietnam that would give us the decades of triangulation, the passage of time that we need. But I think we've understood that as much as we are so emotionally devastated by participating in this war, that that's too easy a cop-out, that we now have to do it, that what happens in war, that paradox I try to describe of life being at its top, that it clearly brings out the worst, but also the best, nevertheless uh, requires us to return again. And so in some senses, I'm sorry to say, but also very happy to say that, that you know, we'll have to go back and try to figure out this inscrutable thing when uh, human beings kill each other. Well, Ken, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.